listening to Vet Candy. Welcome to Unmasking the Opioid Crisis, a Veterinarian's Vital Role Unveiled, presented by Vet Candy and brought to you by Covetris. Join me, your host, Clay Palmer, on this educational podcast journey as we delve deep into the opioid crisis, tracing its roots from the 1980s to present day. Throughout this series, we'll explore the history of opioids and examine the consequences of decades of use in the U.S. To shed light on the current state of this crisis, we'll talk with leading experts, highlighting the crucial role veterinarians play in safeguarding the health of their patients, their communities, and even themselves. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. This show is brought to you by the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector. Are you tired of dealing with the hassle of IV dislodgements and line breakages during critical treatments? Well, we've got great news for you. Introducing the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector, the game-changing innovation that will revolutionize your clinic's workflow. As a busy veterinarian, I used to struggle with IV issues, wasting precious time and resources. But ever since I started using the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector, it's been a total game changer. With this device's anti-reconnect feature, I never have to worry about contamination after separation. Plus, the recessed valves prevent bacterial contamination for up to two hours. Join veterinarians like Dr. Shannon in experiencing the ultimate time-saving hack in your clinic with the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector. Don't let IV issues slow you down. Upgrade your clinic today and see the difference the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector can make. Say goodbye to wasted time and hello to efficiency. Exclusively at Covetris. Before we begin, let's delve into the origins of the opioid crisis and try to put things into perspective as to just how many people suffer under its influence. Back in 1980, a concise yet influential letter found its way into the New England Journal of Medicine. In just five sentences, its author made the assertion that the risk of addiction associated with opioid administration to patients was quite low. This seemingly innocuous letter would be cited more than 600 times since its publication, often invoked to justify the use of opioids for non-malignant pain management. David Herzberg, a distinguished professor of history at the University of Buffalo, has dedicated his career to examining not only the opioid epidemic, but also the broader history of prescription drugs, illicit substances, and addiction. In addition to contributing over a dozen articles to scholarly medical journals, as well as popular media outlets, Herzberg has authored three books on various aspects of drugs, including the notable work titled White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. They did have a landmark study with authors who are the fanciest names in pain management at that time, and they could provide that. This other study was one that was cited in the landmark study. And so one of the things that, that really made this opioid campaign have legs is the way that they were able to use what they called KOLs, which are key opinion leaders. So on the one hand, these were people who had enormous respect and were leaders in the field. Through 
the KOL programs, which are paying people plenty of money to go around and give talks. And like, it doesn't matter if you're a good person who really believes in it or you're a cynical person getting paid by the company that produces it to talk up the medicine that creates a conflict of interest that you just can't think your way out of. You can't be moral your way out of that. That definitely slanted things. And then at the same time, these were leaders in the field who had influence over the structures that govern the practice of medicine. So I'm talking about medical boards. I'm talking about specialty societies, you know, like geriatric society, the American Academy of Pain Medicine, these kind of things. And they were all issuing guidelines that said, more people need more opioids. The way that I like to think about it is if conscientious doctors, the ones who ask the most questions and who said, I want to see the data, I want to see what the, you know, I'm a geriatrician, I want to see what the American Geriatric Society says. Well, they would look at the white ribbon report and the stuff printed in the journal of the society, and it would say more opioids for more people. You would have to go in and look at the biographies of the people that wrote the report, like a committee of 16, and discover that 11 of them had been paid by Purdue, been paid by Endo, been paid by Insys. So that's already something most people aren't doing because you have faith in your professional society and you believe that they are above getting paid off. During the 1980s, there was a notable surge in the prescription of opioids, with it no longer being confined to acute and malignant pain causes. Many states began to relax the restrictions on opioid prescribing. Between 1990 and 1995, the number of opioid prescriptions saw an annual increase of 2 to 3 million. In 1995, a significant development occurred with the FDA's approval of OxyContin, and just two years later, the American Academy of Pain Medicine and the American Pain Society issued a consensus statement endorsing the use of opioids for chronic pain management. In 2001, healthcare organizations introduced new standards for pain assessment in hospitals, aimed at measuring patient satisfaction. Among the 25 questions used to evaluate patient well-being, three specifically addressed pain control. This period also saw the inclusion of pain as the fifth vital sign on medical charts. When I tell you that the opioid industry flooded the zone with different tactics and everything you can imagine happened. So in some cases, yes, there was perfectly above board. This is a person representing the company or what have you. In other cases, there were unrestricted grants to the companies that ran continuing medical education programs that they would get kind of pre-made modules on pain management, and you would have to hunt really hard to discover that there was industry funding. Thanks to careless and aggressive marketing strategies, the number of OxyContin prescriptions soared from 6,070 to 6.2 million between 1997 and 2002, marking a 1,000% increase. Additionally, during this period, the total number of opioid prescriptions surged by 45 million, all in the span of only five years. According to Beth Macy, the renowned author of the best-selling book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America, as mentioned in an interview with the Harvard Gazette, Purdue Pharma specifically targeted regions such as Appalachia. This choice was motivated by the fact that these areas experienced higher-than-average workplace injuries mainly due to the coal mining, logging, and farming industries. They targeted really carefully to states where, number one, there was a large white population, because traditionally in like rural Ohio and the state of Maine, places like that. And the reason they did that is that in this country, drug danger and like junkies and dope fiends and addicts and this stuff have usually been characterized and portrayed as black or non-white in some way. So the drug companies were like, oh, we're selling opioids. We got to be real careful not to 
associate our product with these kind of populations that authorities get worried about. It's a blade that cuts two ways because you can't practice medicine without opioids. So, you know, on the one hand, it spared them being the target of this hypermarketing. But on the other hand, you know, you talk to Black people in these times that, that pills are just being shoveled into West Virginia by the millions, and they're having their wisdom teeth pulled and not able to get even enough opioids to be able to prevent serious pain because of those kinds of racial assumptions that are built into the world of medicine. Like, how do you tell? Remember, I said that we don't know who is vulnerable to addiction. When you don't know something, a lot of times your prejudices fill in the answer for you. With a lot of physicians in the medical system was like, well, it seems to me that it's racial minorities that are most of the people with addiction, and therefore they're the ones that are at risk for it. And so in a weird way, stereotypes about white people in this case made them vulnerable. Like the idea that, well, they're not going to get addicted. These are fine upstanding, like the good country people aren't going to whatever. And so we'll just shovel these pills at them. Instead of accepting we really don't know the answer to who's vulnerable at which times, when you replace that honesty with these kind of racial ideas about white people and about black people, everybody ends up getting hurt because some people can't get access to the medicine they need and others are just getting buried in it. And those communities that got flooded with pills, we were talking about vaping and teenagers, like especially in poor areas, being a teenager is hard. If everybody and their brother knows they can get a pill that'll make things feel good from, you know, their uncle's medicine cabinet or what have you, that's where you run into really big problems. Let's take a step back to gain some perspective and consider these staggering numbers. In 2006, there were 72 opioid prescriptions written for every 100 people. Only two years later, the United States was consuming over half the world's prescription opioids. And in 2016, Approximately 62 million patients had filled at least one opioid prescription. Let's turn this around and think about from the perspective of that 16-year-old who stole some pills from his mom's medicine cabinet because everyone's doing it. And hey, it's a medicine. How dangerous can it be? That kid who then, let's say, became addicted. Now, thanks to the pharmaceutical companies, they're like, oh, well, you're the bad guy now. They cut them off, say you can't buy any more of these pills. And if you do buy the pills, we've reformulated them. So you can't crush them up and snort them anymore anyway. That kid has got an addiction. It means they're very strongly motivated to keep buying opioids and buy somewhere else. Well, if you're addicted to opioids, only an opioid will keep you from going into withdrawal. And so they go and they buy heroin. So you got suddenly you got all these new people buying heroin. It used to be a small number of people buying. Now you got a big number. Well, that's a bunch of demand. So new suppliers jump in. They're like, oh, all these people are buying heroin. I'm going to jump in and sell. And right. And so these new suppliers, they're like, well, you got to know someone who has a field of opium poppies and knows how to grow them, do all this stuff. You know, it's easier to just manufacture a synthetic opioid like fentanyl. So these new suppliers come in, they sell fentanyl. Okay, I'm getting to xylazine, I swear. The trouble with fentanyl is that it's much shorter acting than heroin. The trouble for if you're a person, you know, who's picky. Right. And so they need to be buying this even more often, which leads to a less stable life and it's more dangerous. And that's where xylazine comes in because xylazine extends the action and it's causing a lot of damage in the people who inject it as well, causing necrosis like flesh that that'll rot away near the injection site. And, and so it's really dangerous. And for those of us who know and care about people who are dealing with an addiction, like it's quite terrifying that they're using drugs multiple times a day. And any one of those times can lead to really serious health problems or, or even fatality. 
the mistake was, right, you had a group of people who it was bad that they had developed an addiction where they didn't have to, right? That's not good for them. But they were alive by kind of kicking them out of this market with products that were regulated and safe without providing them an alternative. That's where you get the line to fentanyl. That's where you get the line to xylazine. And in retrospect, it's like, you know, they should have said, we care about the people who become addicted. And our first priority is to make sure that they aren't going to die. These are people's kids. These are your cousins. These are your family members. We need to make sure to take care of them because they're people and uh, they're loved. As per a study published in Drug and Alcohol Dependence in 2013, research conducted on young urban injection drug users who were interviewed between 2008 and 2009 revealed some alarming statistics. It was found that a significant 86% of these individuals had engaged in non-medical use of opioid pain relievers before turning to heroin. Their transition into non-medical opioid use was primarily attributed to three main sources, family members, friends, or their own personal prescriptions. Dr. Joshua J. Lynch, a clinical associate professor of emergency at the University at Buffalo, is known as a national authority in addiction medicine. He possesses expertise in enhancing access to medication-assisted treatment for individuals grappling with substance use disorders, and he had this to say. I think that we thought we were getting to a better place in regards to overdose deaths right before COVID happened. In 2015 and 2016 is really where many parts of the country saw the highest levels of opiate overdose deaths for a while, and then we started to see kind of a downtrend in 2017, 18, 19. And then COVID and the isolation that people had then, we know now that substance use went way up during COVID and so did overdose deaths, uh, which is really not surprising. As we kind of came out of COVID, we really had all hoped that some of the public health measures that we learned throughout the pandemic could have got us to a much better place. And we did start to see some downtrend. However, now the last year in 2022 and the first half or three quarters of 2023, We've unfortunately seen in many parts of the country overdose deaths going much higher, higher than they even were in the first peak back in 2016. So unfortunately, we haven't really headed in, in the right direction over the last year, year and a half. And there's a lot of variables you know, that I'm sure we'll talk about in regards to fentanyl contamination of stimulants, the xylazine impact on fentanyl itself, and some other factors. As per data from the National Institute of Health, approximately 3 million individuals in the United States and 16 million worldwide have either experienced or are currently dealing with opioid use disorder. In the United States alone, more than half a million people are dependent on heroin. Opioid use disorder refers to the persistent use of opioids that results in significant clinical distress or impairment. Interestingly, there are just as many individuals using opioids regularly as are patients diagnosed with conditions such as obsessive-compulsive disorder, psoriatic arthritis, and epilepsy in the United States. The diagnosis of opioid use disorder aligns with the criteria outlined in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, which includes an individual's strong desire to obtain and use opioids despite facing adverse social and professional consequences. You know, there's an interesting book called Dopamine Nation written by a physician that's fantastic. And I think what you're getting at is really kind of the, the reward pathway. And opioids certainly give the brain a reward in the terms of dopamine and satisfaction and other things. But yeah, what we know now is that opiate use disorder is really a chronic disease. And in many cases, it's a lifelong disease, even, even after you stop using 
the chemistry in the brain really starts to change when exposed to such high level of opioids and high levels of dopamine that spike after you take medications like opioids or other things for pleasure, whether that's alcohol, gambling, social media, stimulants, exercise. It can be a variety, you know, a variety of things and, and your brain kind of starts to crave that next hit of dopamine. And, you know, opiate use disorder is certainly a prime example of the reward pathway, at least in the brain. And then there's obviously other physiologic dependence issues that start to happen. So in addition to kind of activating reward pathways in the brain, you also have a physical dependence on having opioid in your system. A lot of us know that when you don't have opioid in your system, you're an opioid withdrawal, and that's a horrible place to be. Opioids encompass a range of substances, including heroin, morphine, codeine, fentanyl, and synthetic opioids like oxycodone. Opioid use disorder involves an intense craving for opioids, heightened tolerance to their effects, and experience withdrawal symptoms upon cessation. This disorder encompasses both dependence and addiction, with addiction signifying the most severe manifestation of the condition. There are definitely MRI or functional MRI studies or projects that are going on that look at changes. Those have also been done in the bigger picture of looking at chronic exposure to high levels of dopamine in compulsive gamblers or daily drug users. Opiate use certainly would affect those changes as well. Opioid withdrawal arises when an individual who is reliant on opioids abruptly decreases or ceases their opioid intake. This condition is life-threatening and arises due to opioid dependence. Being on medication for addiction treatment or MAT or medication-assisted treatment, that's a treatment that people really need to be on for a very long time. And in some cases, it's lifelong treatment. We know that when patients are on medication for opioid use disorder and they're doing well and they're back to work and they've gotten their life back together, let's say that takes a year. Sometimes the patient or their family may say, you know, okay, we're doing great. We want them off the medication now. And it's really startling to see when we start to decrease doses of Suboxone, for example, uh, or Methadone, that even after a year or two, the cravings come right back. So it just speaks to the degree of remodeling or physiologic changes that happen that persist for a very long time. As per the criteria outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the indicators and manifestations of opioid withdrawal comprise lacrimation or rhinorrhea, piloerection, myalgia, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, pupillary dilation, photophobia, insomnia, and autonomic hyperactivity, which includes symptoms like tachypnea, hyperflexia, tachycardia, sweating, hypertension, and hyperthermia. There's a myth that this is a fixable thing and we can fix this in a couple weeks. That's typically not the case. The myth that this continues to be a choice, obviously in some people it starts off as a series of bad choices, but in the majority of people, typically opiate use disorder or opiate dependence at least had started off by taking well-meaning prescriptions after an injury or, or another painful condition. It truly becomes a physiologic dependence and avoiding withdrawal. And another myth is that people continue to use to get high. Many patients with opiate use disorder that I see in the emergency department are not using to get high anymore. They're just simply using to get through the day in a somewhat normal state. That's a scary realization to make, to realize that I just need to use opioids just to let me function normal or as normal as they can be. 
I would say those are really kind of the big myths that I see. In the past, and often still today, addiction has been viewed as a deficiency in willpower that could potentially be conquered through significant effort or self-control. Today, it's widely understood by medical professionals that substance misuse interferes with the brain circuits associated with pleasure and reward, and persistent substance use can lead to structural changes in the brain. Opiates are an addictive medication. They are also a good medication for very painful conditions. Depending on a lot of other factors, some environmental, some genetic, some others, even taking a five-day course of opioids for a painful condition, your wisdom teeth, you know, a knee injury or other sports injury, even just five days can lead to a low level of dependence. And in some people, they will have some withdrawal symptoms after five days. Some people will go back to their doctor and ask for another five days. And, you know, you can see how a problem starts fairly innocently. Maybe the next time they get hurt or they have some ongoing pain, they ask for a higher dose and maybe they get it. And again, I mean, a lot of this is very innocent. The next thing you know, you know, you're on really high doses and then you run out early. You start either buying someone else's medication or trying to get medicine in in other ways. So that's initially how most people ended up developing addiction. Either they were told by their doctor that it wasn't addictive for a variety of reasons, or it was safe to take for a week or 10 days or two weeks. But even as recent as seven to 10 years ago, patients were still getting 30-day supplies of opioids after a seemingly minor injury. We were using opioids for dental pain on a regular basis. You know, Now we realize that Some people on a five or 10 day course of opioids went on to develop addiction. Research indicates that individuals with opioid use disorder who pursued detoxification followed by complete abstinence often experience relapses or a return to drug use. Although relapse is a common occurrence during the recovery process, it can pose life-threatening risks, including the potential for a fatal overdose. As a result, a crucial strategy to aid in the recovery from heroin or prescription opioid use disorder is the maintenance of abstinence from these substances. You know, dependence and opiate use disorder, because I think there's a big misconception between the two of those things. So if you take a medication for a period of time and you feel bad or, you know, you have some symptoms of withdrawal from that medication, you know, that's demonstrating that you had some sort of physiologic dependence on the medication. So, you know, if you take opioids for two weeks or an antidepressant, you know, for a couple months and you stop them abruptly, you'll have some sort of withdrawal. And that's true for a fair amount of medications. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have opiate use disorder. Going from dependence on something to opiate use disorder is kind of a gray line. But once you fall into the clinical diagnosis criteria of opiate use disorder, it becomes pretty clear how it's different. And how it's different is that you need to have a couple different symptoms from some different categories. This is from the DSM-5 criteria, which is kind of the diagnostic criteria for certain disorders. When we talk about opiate use disorder, it's getting to the point that you're doing things that are reckless or dangerous to yourself or others. You also change the ability for you to kind of complete your activities of daily living. Let's say someone overdoses and requires Narcan and requires 911 to be called. That is clearly using more than the intended dose, causing danger to yourself and having negative consequences. So for people that are taking pain medication, even chronically, let's say they're 
chronic pain and they're on opioids chronically, a lot of those people don't have opiate use disorder. They're taking the medication as prescribed. Maybe it's twice a day, still functioning. They're not doing things that are dangerous. They're not being reckless. They're not taking more than prescribed. So those people do not have opiate use disorder. The people that are stealing things, either stealing drugs or stealing money to get drugs, and then overdosing or using more or being reckless or doing dangerous things, that is opiate use disorder. And if you just Google opiate use disorder, DSM-5, that would be a way to kind of take a look at the specific criteria. There are more than what we've just talked about. There are many national resources. There's a national addiction hotline. You can also check with your local county health department. They may have more specific local resources. I run a program that provides linkage resources for people in New York State, like the New York State Department of Health and some other state organizations may have some more specific uh, things. Getting help is literally the difference between life and death. Individuals in recovery can also leverage medications that alleviate the adverse effects of withdrawal and cravings, all while avoiding the euphoria associated with the original drug of abuse. One recent example is the FDA's approval of lefexidine, a non-opioid medication specifically developed to mitigate opioid withdrawal symptoms. Additionally, medications like methadone and buprenorphine are also used. The availability of telemedicine is certainly important and exciting. The more widespread availability of Narcan, also important, and the development of treatment that's easier to take. So long-acting, slow-release injections of buprenorphine or, or the Suboxone kind of equivalent, Supplicate is one of the trade names. That's a medication that you can take once a month instead of having to take every day. Methadone, a synthetic opioid agonist, alleviates withdrawal symptoms and cravings by targeting the same brain receptors as heroin and other opioids, albeit in a slower and non-euphoria-inducing manner. It has been effectively used for over 40 years to treat opioid use disorder and is dispensed through specialized opioid treatment programs. Buprenorphine, a partial opioid agonist, binds to these receptors but with less intensity than full agonists, effectively reducing cravings and withdrawal symptoms without inducing euphoria. Research has shown its comparable effectiveness to methadone when administered at sufficient doses and durations. The FDA has since approved buprenorphine in 2002, allowing certified physicians to prescribe it, thus expanding access to treatment and treatment options. Naltrexone, an opioid antagonist, thwarts opioid receptors activation, preventing rewarding effects like euphoria, making it different than other treatments that control withdrawal and cravings. This, however, has seen its use somewhat limited due to patient adherence and tolerability issues. Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder, or OUD, offers various options including medication, inpatient treatment, 12-step programs, counseling, and more. Medication-assisted treatment combines approved medications with counseling and behavioral therapies, addressing OUD from multiple angles. Research supports the effectiveness of combining medication and therapy in tandem for treating these disorders, offering hope and sustained recovery in what too often feels like a hopeless situation. Typically, people are kind of hiding the addiction because they're ashamed. So, you know, approaching a family member or a friend or a coworker or a loved one that you think may have be having an issue, you know, just keep that in mind. And typically, the going the accusatory route is not going to be helpful for either one. I'd really recommend kind of taking the supportive angle. According to a 2017 Presidential Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, more than 175 Americans are losing their lives each day due to the opioid epidemic. The individual stories are heartbreaking and tragically common. Although addiction is increasingly recognized as a disease, 
it is not treated like other diseases. Stigma and blame remain widespread, reflecting decades of treating addiction primarily as a criminal concern. Today, we are gaining a better understanding of the root crisis as we acknowledge its far-reaching impact. For individuals grappling with opioid use disorder, there are numerous treatment options available. Recovery is possible with the right care, support, and treatment. Whether you or a loved one are considering treatment, there are various pathways to recovery and professionals willing and available to help you reach your goal. Each person can find an approach that suits their unique needs and receive the help they deserve and require. Additionally, there is a national helpline available for confidential and free assistance provided by public health agencies to help you find substance use treatment and access information. You can reach this helpline at 1-800-662-4357. If you need assistance or even think you need assistance, please call this helpline. Addiction cannot be fought on your own and there are people who want to help. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey fellow veterinary professionals, I'm Dr. Shannon Gregoire and I want to share my experience with the Covetris Break Free Breakaway IV Connector, the innovative IV device that's been a total game changer. Now let me tell you, using this device has been a breath of fresh air in our daily workflow. No more worrying about dislodged IV lines or struggling with line breakages during critical treatments. Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connectors Anti-Reconnect feature is a lifesaver. It ensures that once the line separates, there's no chance of contamination. Plus, the recessed valves prevent bacterial contamination for up to two hours after separation. It's like they thought of everything. Another standout feature is how it connects with standard ISO lure connectors, making it compatible with our existing equipment. It's super convenient and easy to use. And let's talk about the numbers. Break Free has been shown to significantly reduce IV restarts by 65%. That's a huge time saver and reduces stress for both our team and our patients. It's not just about efficiency, it's about providing top-notch care for our patients. So, if you're looking for an IV accessory that enhances your clinic's performance and ensures your patients get the best care, I highly recommend giving Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector a try, exclusively at Covetris. Unmasking the Opioid Crisis, a Veterinarian's Vital Role Unveiled was written by Dr. Jill Lopez and Omar Lopez and is a Vet Candy production. Special thanks to the University of Buffalo, the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, Veterinary Telespeciality by VOCN, and the Chapman Law Group. Please check the show comments below for information about how to get continuing education credit plus recommended reading. If you enjoyed the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Even better, leave a rating or a comment. It really helps others find the show. For Vet Candy, I am Clay Palmer. We will be back next week and thank you for listening. It's Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.